The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Gia Kokotakis, intern at Lawfare with an episode of Rational Security for July 30th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled The Norbit Returns Edition. This week, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein sat down with Lawfare Executive Editor Natalie Orpit to discuss the Israeli Knesset's vote to restrict the court's ability to review administrative decisions by the executive branch, the Biden administration's suit against the state of Texas for installing an unapproved floating barrier across the Rio Grande River, the Supreme Court's resistance to stronger accountability measures, and more. This is Rational Security. Guys, it's so bittersweet seeing you again on a screen because but days ago, I was breathing the same air, eating the same pizza as you all for our annual Lafer get-together. It was amazing. I miss you all so much already. We miss you too, Alan. It was a sweet moment. It is. Uh, but, you know, we're just so used to seeing you in two dimensions. I feel like this is much more natural in a way. <laughs> you have a flat Stanley appeal. And so <laughs> we want to keep it that way. You're our, you our flat friend that we send around to different corners of the world. So why would we change that more than once a year? All I will say is that it remains so jarring to me just how tall you are, Scott. I, I, I am a tall person, but I'm terrible at basketball and volleyball, so it does very little for me. So, you know, that's life. Other than surprise people in the era of COVID. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think I need to lower my camera angle, I've decided, on Zoom. That must be the confusion. Everybody's getting too much forehead. Really, you get much more up my nose perspective for most people. And I feel like if I put my camera down there, <laughs> that would solve a lot of my height issues. I would look much more familiar to people. I've always thought that that is your most flattering angle. Right up the schnapp. I work hard at it. <laughs> you know, a lot of tiny scissors <laughs> get deployed to, to keep to keep keep that perspective remotely, remotely uh, viewable. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. Excited to be back here in the IRL studio with another one of my co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And online in the virtual studio with our third co-host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to welcome back to the real-life studio our dear colleague, Natalie Norpit Orpit, one <laughs> of our favorite frequent guests. Uh, excited to be here back in person to hash through the week's national security news. Welcome back, Natalie. It has been too long. It has. I'm thrilled to be back. 
We are, Natalie is a, is a, uh, a very big fan of the in-person office arrangements and seeing her in 3D is the way we're used to seeing her, unlike our colleague Alan and mostly in 2D. Um, but I don't think we've ever actually done a live podcast recording with Ratsack because this studio, we kind of stood up during your, your absence. Is that right? We did. Yeah, it's it's very fun to be this proximate to both of you. And Alan from afar. <laughs> I, feel like I am people, next to you in spirit, Alan. I appreciate it. I feel like people always look different when they have these big hand headphones on, which I'm always noticing the first time I see people because everybody's got like kind of a Princess Leia vibe. I think is the only <laughs> so way to Someone it. once told me that I looked like an alien when I wore my big headphones. I, it's, everyone looks ridiculous in them. And it's weird that we haven't found a better way to do this, that we don't <laughs> all look like, you know, some alien princess. But so be it. That's fine. But look Was at us not alien? laughing the entire time. Yes, exactly. So, But we're happy to have you back, in spite or perhaps because of that, uh, for what we are calling the Norpit Returns Edition in your honor, because it has been a big week in national security news. We're still not talking about that one story. We're still holding that one until it happens. You know the one I'm talking about, listeners. But we have lots of other interesting stories to talk over in the news, including our first topic, Next Fear in Jerusalem. This week, Israel's Knesset voted to abolish the reasonableness doctrine that had allowed its courts to review re- administrative decisions by the executive branch, a revolutionary move that triggered unprecedented protests around the country and a wave of resignation throughout the armed forces in other corners of the country. What is the significance of this change and what does it mean for the future of Israeli democracy? Topic two, Rio grandstanding. The Biden administration sued the state of Texas this week for installing barriers across the Rio Grande River, purportedly to stymie the flow of unlawful immigration. Texas, meanwhile, maintains that it has the right to take these measures as part of its sovereign authority as a state. Who has the better of these arguments and what does it tell us about the state of the law and politics surrounding immigration in the United States? And topic three, gone fishing. Despite months of revelations regarding ethical shortcomings by its members, the Supreme Court has thus far resisted efforts to install stronger accountability mechanisms. But earlier this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee adopted a measure along party lines that would force the court to do so by directing it to adopt a code of ethics. Is this the right approach? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I think it might be helpful to level set just a little bit about how the Israeli constitutional system works uh, before we get into what happened this week. Um, so I said constitutional system, but uh, Israel is interesting and quite unique for a liberal democracy in that it doesn't actually have a written constitution. They were going to write one, but they sort of never got around to it Relatable. when Israel was was yeah was formed. <laughs> Look, my to-do list is really long, too. And let's be real. There's a lot of stuff that's never getting done there. They have what's called the basic law, but those are just statutes that have over the decades come to play a sort of particularly important structural role in the Israeli political system. Um, Israel is also a parliamentary system. um, And so functionally, uh, at least if there's a strong enough parliamentary majority, you have basically two two relevant branches here, right? You have the parliamentary branch, right? The, The Knesset and the prime minister. And then you have the courts, whose jurisdiction, again, is not really set by constitutional standards. It's more set by practice. Over the last several decades, um, especially under leadership of uh, the justices in the 90s and 2000s, the Israeli Supreme Court has taken more and more authority for itself to strike down acts of parliament, something, again, that we in the United States take for granted as something that a court obviously does in a separation of power system, but it's actually not at all clear in a parliamentary system like Israel's. Now, that power has largely been 
kind of tacitly accepted uh, by parliamentary leaders uh, on both the left and right. Uh, but over the last several years, a number of issues have kind of cropped up that have led, in particular, the right wing of the Israeli political system to increasingly lose support for that. Um, these include just the increasing polarization of Israeli society, the fact that um, sort of settler and um, ultra-Orthodox interests have become more important on the right, and these have often not done as well in the Supreme Court uh, as they would have liked, uh, though they have done pretty well overall. And of course, you have Benjamin Netanyahu, who, in addition to being a extraordinarily polarizing figure in Israeli politics, is currently on trial or currently under indictment um, for corruption charges um, and has his own reasons to sort of weaken the judiciary or at least to make deals with those in his far-right coalition who want to weaken the judiciary. So all of this has lead up to what happened in December when after Netanyahu formed the most right-wing government in Israeli history, uh, he announced this big sweeping package of uh, you know, quote-unquote reforms to the Israeli judicial system, the centerpiece of which is getting rid of one of the main ways in which the Supreme Court oversees government action, which is through what the so-called reasonableness review. Now, it's not quite as expansive as reasonableness sounds. The Supreme Court doesn't just strike down things that thinks are unreasonable. It's a higher standard uh, than that. But it's still, I think everyone agrees, and that is the point, gives the court quite a bit of power over uh, the Israeli government. The initial package of judicial reforms was met with just a truly unprecedented wave of protests, hundreds of thousands of Israelis marching on the streets in, I think, the largest protests in Israel's history, a real mobilization of the center and left that we frankly have never seen in the country's history. And Netanyahu's government backed down, but it was never clear exactly what their plan was. Fast forward a few months. On Monday, the Knesset uh, voted unanimously, 64 to 0, to pass this part of the reform, getting rid of reasonableness. I say unanimously because the remaining uh, 56 members of the Knesset walked out in protest of what they view as a, an illegitimate vote. Like, there were similarly sized marches and uh, protests, but this time they, they did not work. And so that's where we are this week. So that, that's a lot of background, but hopefully I think that's helpful to sort of getting a sense of what is at stake here. Natalie, I know you've thought a lot about this. So let me, let me start with you. Concretely and specifically, what are the effects of what happened on Monday on the Israeli constitutional and separation of powers system? You know, how substantial is this as a matter of weakening judicial review? And uh, even if it doesn't go all the way, you know, should we do we think this is the the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning or somewhere in the middle of the uh, government's um, attack on on an independent judiciary in Israel? Yeah, so I want to start by just saying that um, folks who are really interested in this topic should spend some time on other lawfare resources because we have some truly excellent experts who have written for us. Um, Yuval Shaney and Amiche Cohen uh, did a six-part series on judicial reforms several weeks ago. Um, we actually have an excellent podcast um, that aired this morning, uh, Wednesday, so it will be yesterday for folks listening that our colleague Ben Wittes did with Natan Sachs and Yuval Shaney and Amichai Cohen talking about this very development. They can talk much more intelligently than all of us, I think I can safely say. So I'd really recommend looking at those additional resources. I will just to add to a little background to what you said, Alan, the Israeli system is also different. It's really fundamentally different than what we are used to as Americans in terms of checks and balances. So not only is 
the um, prime minister, which is sort of has a lot of executive power type functions, a part of the legislature, the Knesset. But also the Knesset is a unicameral body. So there isn't even a check between, you know, what we are used to between the House and the Senate. The judiciary then serves what, you know, supporters at least will claim is sort of uh, representing the public interest against what can be a somewhat mercurial sometimes coalition that functions as the executive uh, based on the cabinet uh, created by the prime minister as since this is a parliamentary system, um, coalitions can change with different elections. And as you said, this is a really extremely far right uh, coalition currently in power. So the reasonableness review, um, as these experts described it, is analogous best to what we know as an arbitrary and capricious standard. And it's looking at administrative law. Um, so it's not re- it's not the standard to review all laws passed by the Knesset. It's um, an administrative uh, function. So it looks at what the cabinet does. But as in the United States, these administrative actions really have a huge impact on not only the exercise of policy, which, as I mentioned, shifts a lot depending on the coalition, but also just the the functions that, again, we think of as executive power. Um, so taking this authority away from the judiciary, which which analyzes it from a non-political, non-trying to maintain the coherence of a coalition basis is a huge shift and a really dramatic change. And that is why you are seeing the number of people in protests, but also the the variety of people in protests. Um, it's really a broad swath of Israeli society. Um, and I think one of the things that experts are identifying as a truly remarkable development is that it's also impacting members of the military, in particular reservists who are threatening to not show up um, when they are called or, or requested for military service, which is really a huge issue in Israel in terms of the culture of the military and also, frankly, the the sense of national security for Israel. And I think one part of the crisis it's worth flagging as we think about this is that this is not the end. This is the beginning. We've already seen uh, a legal challenge – well, actually several legal challenges, but one's officially been filed and scheduled in the Israeli court system to this law itself. So the Supreme Court of Israel is going to review Knesset's ability to repeal the reasonableness doctrine, which itself is kind of interesting because what would the, be the basis for it? not having the ability to do that? You'd have to go through some sort of like – pre-statutory assumptions about values that are baked into, you know, the structure of Israeli government, which, again, there isn't the prioritization or hierarchy of authorities we have in a lot of other governments like a constitution and then statutes and then regulations. Um, It's it's, it's just Marbury versus Madison all over again, man. Yeah, or Worcester v. Georgia, right? Which is like, you know, when uh, all of a sudden the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do this, and then how will Netanyahu's government react Perhaps they will just stop listening to the Supreme Court, right? And this um, is this is this is the famous: the Supreme Court has its decision, let it enforce it from uh, from Andrew Jackson, Jackson which is yeah. apocryphal. I my understand is my understanding, but too nonetheless, good, too good to check. Yes, exactly. It's a great quote and a troublesome moment um, down, coming down the pike. Perhaps even more troubling is that this is the first of several slices of reforms the Netanyahu's coalition is still considering. The next one, which a lot of people see as potentially more controversial, though probably hinges a little bit on how 
how that challenge of this first law comes out is about the selection process for judges. Um, and that is uh, evidently being teed up for a potential vote, I think, as soon as next week is what I saw, uh, although there are usually at least two readings and I think there are always two readings in this, at the Knesset, if I recall correctly. So I don't know whether what that means in terms of when it will actually be enacted. Uh, but at least the process is, I think, is scheduled to start as soon as next week. So we're, we're going to see this crisis is going to be ongoing. Um, and it's pretty dramatic, uh, including ways that that are could be paralyzing for the Israeli state. I, and I don't use that term lightly. I mean, you had so many doctors resign and refuse to show up for work that they had to get a court order to compel them to show up and do their jobs. You can do that with doctors, maybe. Can you do it with bus drivers and sort of other people? And how sustainable is that? At which point will the doctors stop listening to the courts? Um, uh, or will the courts maybe uh, find that it, its ability to compel people to um, labor against their will has hit a some sort of limit? It's a real problem for the Israeli state. And it really goes to a lot of the criticism of what Netanyahu was trying to do and a lot of the warnings that came from even – the Biden administration, which is frankly very Israeli friendly, even more so than the rest of the Democratic Party in the United States in a lot of ways, where they said doing this without some degree of consensus is going to cause problems. It's so polarizing. How far do you think you can actually get with this? And we're going to find out. And it's going to be a painful process, I think, for Israelis uh, and for Israel as a state. I will say just to bring it back to the United States, because, of course, we're we're self-obsessed. I do find it interesting how the conversation around the judicial reforms in Israel kind of is a mirror image in some respects of the conversation around the judiciary in the United States. So what you see in Israel is a sort of rising right wing uh, trying to roll back the power of the judiciary by a variety of mechanisms what you see in the United States is a left that is increasingly frustrated with the federal court systems, particularly the Supreme Court, as we're going to talk about later in this show, and is encouraging measures like uh, restricting the court's jurisdiction, right? Thinking about putting some kind of restraint on how long uh, judges and justices can serve, although that's kind of a long shot. And there are some people who are advocating for, you know, the president just going out there and saying, you know, John Roberts has made his decision. I'll let him enforce it, um, which I find interesting. I don't want to say, you know, either side is being hypocritical here. Either obviously, there are extremely distinct domestic political contexts, and a lot of it has to do with the different sort of political design of both systems, as Natalie was saying earlier. But I find it interesting because it suggests to me that, you know, there are some people in the U.S. who have suggested that there's something inherently right-wing about a judiciary that is empowered and that there is something inherently left and democratic about disempowering the judiciary. And what the scenario in Israel suggests to me is that that's wishful thinking. These are systems. The usefulness of the system depends on who is in power and which particular sort of location and what levers they have to pull on. And it can just as easily be a different way. Somewhat related to that, just on the point of how this all intersects with the United States, I did read um, something that I found really surprising, although perhaps I shouldn't have, um, which is that reportedly um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his family have been spreading this far-right conspiracy theory that the Biden administration is helping to foment the protests um, and perhaps even financing them, which is just a – very odd 
And again, yet maybe predictable turn of events in terms of bringing U.S.-Israeli relations into what is fundamentally a domestic dispute. Yeah, Natalie, it's an interesting point, and I kind of want to use that to, to zoom out a little bit and, and talk about the U.S.-Israeli relationship in the wake of this action and kind of more generally in the wake of of what we might expect from this government. And and you know, let me let me throw out sort of my depressing view of how I see this playing out, and I'm curious what you all think about this, which is that Israel's main source of support in the United States beyond just the kind of attachment of American Jews um, or the potential attachment of American Jews to Israel has always been the idea that, look, Israel is the one democracy in the Middle East, right? And obviously it's a flawed democracy and obviously the Palestinian issue is a, a mess. But look, you know, at the end of the day, it's a democracy and the not just for the Jews, right? The Arab citizens of Israel have far more rights than the Arab citizens of basically any other Arab state, right? That's always been the argument. And if that stops being the case, if we are seeing the organization of Israel, then that argument that I think has been very powerful in American circles, or especially on the center and the left, goes away. And then you're just left with whatever sort of attachment that American Jews have to Israel and whatever political power that they can bring to bear on, on that issue. But that itself is also problematic, or at least unstable over the long term, because of what I think we haven't talked about, but is I think underlying all of this, which is the demographic issues going on in Israel, right? That the the pr- proportional increase in, in particular, the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel is not only turning that country much more conservative and right-wing, but it's alienating American Jews who are, on the whole, not ultra-Orthodox, and don't necessarily see themselves in a country that is potentially less democratic and not the the sort of Jewish, let's say, that I think most American Jews see themselves. Of course, look, I'm talking in broad generalities. I don't want to speak for anyone. But I think, you know, we can make these sort of population-based assessments. I, I don't see how this is reversed, right? I just, I don't see how how Israel gets out of this, of this death spiral. And f- Frankly, you know, this is not something I'm coming up with. When I talk to my Israeli friends, they're the ones that say this to me. Um, they don't see it either. Um, it all seems very depressing. Yeah. I mean, and in a way, I think that almost understates the, the fundamental crisis, as, as crazy as that seems that that's facing. I mean, the, the idea of Israel as a functional democracy has always hinged on the idea of the two-state solution from the U.S. And, and the European perspective and a lot of the international community. It's always the idea that, yeah – a substantial portion of the population doesn't have a full basket of rights. That's because they are people who are going to receive their own state and they're in a temporary transitional stage before they arrive at an outcome where they will get the full basket of rights that we believe they're entitled to as human beings under international rights law and whatever other standards may be applying general ethics, right? This is in a kind of indirect way but in a very clear way, an assault on that, a continuing assault on that because the policies that – um, you see the slim majority want to drive through have at their core the reinforcement of uh, the idea of a, a particular idea, I should say, of a Jewish state of Israel that necessarily does not – neither yield the West Bank, uh, which is under pressure from settling activity, settlement activity, continues to occupy it, move into it, but then does not give rights to the 
you know, Palestinians who live there. It keeps them in the secondary status. And that is really what the threat from the court was. Um, it's more discrete issues than that. But at its core, that idea is how big a discrepancy can you have between how we treat different groups of people under the state structure, and particularly once the two-state solution ceases to be something that people actually believe in anymore, which frankly, it's already on its way there, if not there already. The United States is one of the few governments, I mean, what European governments do, but it's much more, I think, lip service. The United States, it's really still makes it a policy priority, at least on paper, but the progress towards it is is non-existent. It's been moving away from it, if anything, for the last several decades. And once it ceases to be even a plausible, colorable trajectory, that becomes a real problem. And that's stated expressly in, as I've noted before on this podcast, the Democratic Party platform um, for the last election. You know, the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself, I think, is much friendlier towards Israel because he has a long history with them. He understands there is a fundamentally jointly beneficial security relationship there that is real and is probably not going away. But it also means that like that he is you know departing from his party on that probably where they actually feel on that and you know Netanyahu seems to see this we see from these Biden rumors these conspiracy theories that he's leaning into saying oh i am in the you know kind of trump republican wing camp of de- democratic politics of american politics excuse me and that's where i'm going to build my association we saw that throughout the trump administration where you saw super close relationships and almost direct coordination in a lot of ways around the golan heights around the jerusalem embassy around a lot of other issues the the jared kushner peace plan that were very clearly playing into bibi netanyahu's kind of domestic israeli domestic political uh situation that's a really dangerous position for you know the government to be putting Israel on, let alone for the United States government to put the United States on. I think it's also not great on on the Trump administration's part, as I've criticized at the time. You know, there is a longer term relationship here that has certain fundamental tenets, and this really gets at them, and it makes it no longer a bipartisan relationship. In the long term, that is not going to be in Israel's interest, um, and I think it's really something that is going to cause a lot of tumult in Israel when Israelis begin to realize that. And I think that they have a lot of Israelis may not have fully have a sense of how, you know, on how thin the the, the ties to the United States and Israel actually are becoming rapidly as on a bipartisan basis because of this. And while Republicans, you know, might, might be more willing to lean into the Israeli relationship for domestic political reasons and out of principle values, there's going to be limits there as well because there's just a fundamental disconnect between having a class of secondary citizens and basic democratic values. And a lot of Republicans still share those values very deeply. And it's going to be harder for them to reconcile with that as that becomes a clear reality in Israel. So it's just – it puts it on the whole relationship on on a very tenuous, tenuous basis that is weakening. Is this what – is this what watching Oppenheimer feels like? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's worse than that. And the middle of Barbie. Total moral collapse. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me let me say this just one last one last point. It's also we have to consider the possibility that this isn't a bad thing uh, in the long term. It, it has a lot of negative policy implications, meaning by which I mean the threat to the U.S.-Israeli relationship. But that relationship has also facilitated a lot of Israeli policies that a lot of people I think have very reasonable concerns and objections to, in, particularly around the treatment of Palestinians. And maybe the weakening of that relationship is a necessary step to finally seeing international pressure or something else drive a change towards improved policies on that front uh, in Israel. 
you know, it's the direct relationship between the two. And if the United States gets to the point where it can no longer stomach the approach to those issues in Israel, Israel's really going to be standing on its own. And I think it leans on the United States for that protection right now in a way that a lot of people find objectionable, find concerning, and weakening that shield, I mean, may be the thing that finally puts Israel in a position, well, are we going to be able to sustain to keep doing this behavior, to really feel the consequences of those policies and those actions in broader national community? It's just the problem is it's a really painful route for people to get there. But that's a pain that right now is just being disproportionately shifted to a disadvantaged part of the population, primarily Palestinians. And maybe that pain being felt more broadly is what will actually drive a change from a status quo that still leaves a lot of people disenfranchised and unable to exercise pretty basic fundamental rights. Maximize the contradictions is what you're saying. Yeah, that, that, that is pr- it is provocatively yeah. galaxy-brained of you, Scott. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it is when you have a status quo that, you know, is problematic, it helps some people or hurts other people. Eventually, you know, the hurt's got to spread if it's going to change. So sometimes you know? the right answer is just to burn it all down. I won't know if I go that far, but I'm just saying we have to at least consider the possibility that this is uh, – is, is the inherent unsustainability of the status quo we've all grown used to is a driver of this. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Uh, and the fact that we're now having to deal with the consequences of a policy that we've kept in place well past the point where it really seemed viable may finally drive us to actually have to deal with those incompatibilities and and disconnects in a way that that's the only way we're actually going to get actual policy change. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking more domestically for Israel, I have heard some commentators say that you know, maybe there is some hope to be found from the fact that the mobilization of protesters has been just extraordinary. And it's not just recently because of this law, but there have been major protests going on for seven months. And as we mentioned earlier, it's it's a coalition of, you know, labor activists and professionals and military people. It's really very, very widespread. And apparently polling lately is showing a really significant decrease to public support for Netanyahu. He would lose if there were an election today. So, you know, maybe there is some promise to an Israeli society that is really very, very clearly not okay with these changes. The problem is that the the politics still are what they are. And this coalition came to be after a lot of failed attempts at other types of coalitions. So, the the public sentiment does not always equal the political power that finds itself able to make these changes. Yeah, I, I just, I just want to under, underscore this this point from Natalie, which I think is totally right. And, and just to maybe even deepen it and say, look, I, I, I think that until we see a general strike, until we see a real mobilization, until we see the country coming to a standstill, we're not going to get the sort of constitutional moment that I think is going to be necessary to to move Israel off it off of its current path. And so I think we should just expect to see and we'll need to see levels of disorder and uncertainty about the country's future that we just have not in a long time, because um, this is an existential moment for, you know, those half of the Israelis that want to live in a liberal, multi-ethnic, you know, Jewish state, but Jewish state on modern liberal lines. Well, going from fights over courts in Israel, let us go to fights in courts in the United States, dealing with a not entirely unrelated difficult set of policy questions uh, about concepts of citizenship and polity uh, and identity at their core. The Biden administration took an interesting legal step this week. There has been a brewing dispute in Texas over the state's decision to place 
um, barriers both over water routes where they suspect uh, various forms of immigration flows are coming from Mexico along the Rio Grande and other bodies of water and also on the land in form of razor wire that has led to some pretty horrific images of people uh, you know, trying to cross these barriers, handing children through them and uh, has caused a number of complaints on a variety of fronts. The Biden administration this week took action on the latter of those, meaning the water barrier, filing a suit against the state of Texas, um, claiming that the state of Texas is in violation of federal law by imposing these barriers, to which the state of Texas has replied that they have the sovereign right to take steps to defend themselves from uh, unlawful immigration and therefore have every right to do this on some legal basis. Uh, We're waiting for the response. We only have the complaint so far. So we'll have to wait to see what the brief says in terms of their argument. Alan, let me start with you on this one, uh, simply because I see you shaking your head, uh, meaning I feel like I, I sense you have strong feelings about these arguments. What should we make about this legal dispute? And, and I'll say, I think the actual concrete legal issues being raised by this complaint are pretty straightforward. You can tell because the complaint is nine pages long. It's not a good sign when you get a nine-page complaint from the Justice Department. It means that they're very confident in their legal arguments. I actually don't think there's a lot of shade of gray on this question of the river barriers. Um, But I think the bigger question is, you know, what does this tell us about the state of this policy area and legal disputes around it? And where are they going to go from here? Um, Because it seems like it's likely to be, but in a way it is, it is only the latest in a stream of incidents. You think about like we discussed before the forced relocation uh, or quasi forced, at least face state funded relocation of you know, migrants in Florida and I think in Texas as well to different parts of the of the country. Um, this is along the similar lines and raises similar legal questions. And yet it it does not seem clear it's going to be anybody's being deterred by those legal questions. So how do you respond to this? How should we think about this? Yeah. And let me let me start with 30 seconds of both sizing so I can get that out of the way before Thank God. Uh, saying mean things about Texas. I, I mean, look, I, I don't want to disappoint Quinta. Um, and look, I will just say the last what I said the last time we talked about sort of immigration issues, and I think this was in the context of the, the busing and then that notorious flight to Martha's Vineyard, which is I think that border states have completely legitimate concerns. And I think that blue states and blue elite opinion often poo-poos this or just casts it as racism, et cetera, et cetera, and does not take it seriously enough. But then the moment they have to deal with migration crises, they flip out. Let, let me just say that like there is a version where I take Texas concerns seriously. So having said my both sides thing, this is nuts. This is nuts on so many levels. So first, and what you're alluding to, Scott, with your nine-page complaint, you can't just put crap in navigable waters, especially not international navigable waters. Like, you just can't do it. You can't do it for so many obvious reasons. First, you can't do it because it's illegal. There are federal statutes that obviously, obviously require you to get a permit before putting like barbed wire and other crap in the middle of the Rio Grande. Even if there weren't statutes that required this, this is why you have a federal government. The the whole reason why you have a national government is to deal with these transnational issues. And so, you know, what Texas is doing is just, I mean, it's absurd, it's obscene, it's cruel, um, and and I do not think it will stand up in court. And I I do not think Texas is even going to get much love from the Fifth Circuit uh, uh, for this. this. This is so ridiculous. Now, at the same time, the question of the state role in immigration is not super straightforward, and there are complexities here, right? It is not accurate to say that um, either through federal statute or through a more general kind of, you know, field preemption, 
uh, constitutionally that states can't do anything that has an impact on immigration uh, or on foreign relations generally. Right. That's definitely not the case. But there's case law on this. There's decades of thinking about this. Uh, what there certainly is not from those cases is any sort of freestanding right to defend your state sovereignty. It's not even clear what that means. We have a part of the government that is in charge of land sovereignty. It's called the federal government. If you are upset with the federal government, you can sue them. And the Supreme Court has signaled that they are very comfortable with states suing the federal government and that they will find standing in all sorts of cases and that they will limit the uh, government's ability to change immigration policy frequently on that basis. But what you don't get to do is to cite some free-floating conception of state sovereignty or to tie it closer to the text of the Constitution, which is what a lot of sort of right-wing legal thinkers want Texas to do, to cite the Republican Guarantee Clause in the Constitution, uh, which guarantees to the states a Republican form of government and protection against invasion. That's some sort of... Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize they were making that argument. That's oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, they're, so they're not they're 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 not they're not technically making that argument yet. But like, th- but the this briefing is, hasn't this, been filed yet. Yeah, like th- these are this this is the vibe. Good grief! Um, like it's not just it's just oh for Christ's sake! Like even I can't both sides this guys. Yeah, I just want to say to to return to your earlier point about border states. Another state that has a lengthy border with Mexico is California which I note has not engaged in any of these actions. Just putting that out there. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Yeah, and I want to say I'll, I'll be a little diplomatic to start before I um, bring the hammer down. It is true that immigration is a really difficult issue. It is true that there are all sorts of complications and there is an immediacy of the crisis that is more felt by southern border states because of the need to deploy resources immediately on an urgent basis to take care of people who are really struggling. And um, all of these logistics are very hard. Immigration policy more broadly, obviously very hard. We haven't been able to make any progress whatsoever, despite many, many Congresses saying that it is a top priority. That said, you know, we can see from what Texas has done so far just how much this is not in good faith. And, you know, perhaps it is immediately something that people feel defensive about if you say that this is motivated by cruelty and racism and trying to score political points with an anti-immigrant sentiment that is found in too much of our country. But, you know, Abbott uh, launched this, what he called the Operation Lone Star project that has involved just some unimaginable cruelty toward human beings. Um, 
he deployed 20,000 members of the military of the state of Texas to the border. There's currently an investigation going on right now in Texas of allegations that members of the, um, I believe the National Guard, but members of the um, Texas law enforcement that were sent to the border were instructed to push migrants, including children and babies, back into the river to deny them entry to the United States and also that they denied migrants drinking water when they arrived on the shores of the United States. We know, obviously, about the sort of ridiculously theatrical sending of migrants on buses to blue states, um, leaving them with no recourse to basic human needs. This is just not a good faith aspect of the problems of immigration. It's it's just cruel. A really quick point on the fact that this is a nine-page complaint and the legal issues, at least here, are very simple. This is the component out of DOJ that is litigating this case is the environmental and natural resources section because the sweet case for NRD. This is a, this is one of the ones you're like, oh man, this is a life. This is a once in a lifetime case for NRD. Was exactly. that Jeffrey cool. Clark's division? It was. It was. <gasps> I don't. I don't believe he was involved. <laughs> yeah. I, well, no, 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 but it was his old division. It, it was. was his old division. Yes. Um, no, they're never gonna. They're never gonna live that down. I feel so bad for them. <laughs> oh no. It's like so yeah. not their fault. But this is, you know, so in some ways, I'm glad we're we're talking about this. This is obviously very prominent in the press right now. But Texas is not engaging in a good faith discussion about what should be done about immigration. And this case is not a good faith effort to investigate some of the complex legal issues that you are rightly pointing to, Ellen. So I find all of this absurd and very angering. And a quick legal point here if, for the nine-page arg- argument as well. There are lots of other arguments the federal government could bring to play here. When you're talking about interboundary uh, water entities, like there's a usually very complex multilayered treaty regimes that govern these bodies and the federal government has sued to enforce them without any related federal statute before. The, like the most well-known case in my mind, which I'm slightly obsessed with even though people don't really pay much attention to it, is Sanitary District of Chicago. Uh, the – I think the – what would it be, V? I can't remember what the other party was. Sanitary District of Chicago. It's like a 1925 opinion. I read that to my kid every night. It's a really interesting <laughs> opinion because it's basically about like, you right know, to sleep. shit, pardon my language, <laughs> Chicago shithouses, <laughs> unable to figure out what to do with all that comes out of the 1920s city of growing Chicago and being like, let's just drain a bunch of water over here. And it lowered, uh, I can't remember which body of water is, but a body of water near Chicago is so much, probably like Lake Michigan, that it interfered with the navigability of, of like Canadian vessels. And so they sued to enforce this treaty regime along with some statutory rights and general principles of equity um, and one, as I recall. And you could have lots of similar arguments brought out here. So if something falls apart in the statutory argument, which I don't think it will, but if it were to somehow do that, the statute is enforcing a complex treaty regime that if the United States violated would cause lots of international issues. And so uh, they've got other arguments they can bring to bear on top of the statutory one in the nine pages if they thought it was necessary. The fact that they didn't tells you how they feel about this case, I think. The fact that this is so obviously illegal under <laughs> the Rivers and Harbors Act, I think, is is really telling and reminds me, I was trying to find this and I just pulled it up, an article by Adam Serwer in The Atlantic called Texas Pays the Price of the Culture War. He lives in San Antonio and this is written in 2021 during the sort of great Texas freeze when the power grid 
uh, gave out when the temperature dipped and a ton of people were left in cold and really unsafe conditions. And his point was essentially that, you know, there are genuine problems of governance that Texas is facing right now. And the state's Republican leaders seem far more concerned in focusing on culture war grievance rather than actually governing, even when that means that people are freezing in the cold, dying of heat stroke in the heat when the power grid goes out, all kinds of terrible, terrible things that really need to be dealt with. And whether or not you think that people crossing the border as they're doing is a problem. I think that the fact that Abbott went forward, did something that was so obviously illegal and is sort of now posturing, you know, saying, I think we'll see you in court, you know, all this kind of stuff is just a further demonstration of the fact that this is a, you know, this is a culture war grievance effort to inflame that kind of grievance and fears around immigration and, you know, the Central Americans invading our country and so on and so forth, rather than an actual effort to make policy. Well, I think what remains to be seen is whether or not there is a conflict between performative, illegal culture war grievance actions and the making of policy. Because, of course, I think what Abbott and other Republicans who are similarly inclined are banking on is that this puts pressure on the political system to restrict you know, immigration. And there are reasons to think that he might be right. I mean, one thing that's quite notable, and we haven't talked about this yet, but is that the Biden administration's approach to immigration um, obviously has some differences than the Trump's, but it has more continuities than I think a lot of Democrats recognize and that they're comfortable with. Biden, the Biden administration has been very stingy, uh, for example, on uh, letting asylees come in, um, so much so that on Tuesday, a, a district judge, uh, a Democratic appointed district judge in Northern California enjoined the highly restrictive asylum program. Now, he stayed the decision for 14 days and we'll see what happens. And so nothing has changed on on that front. But but I, I think what you're seeing is a recognition in the Biden administration that, you know, immigration is not necessarily a great issue for them. Um, and, and if they're being attacked on the right by stuff like what Abbott is doing, and then they end up being hamstrung from the courts, which I, I doubt given the Supreme Court, but you know who knows, about limiting immigration, I think this is a, an issue of, of real uh, vulnerability uh, because, frankly, our immigration system is, is uh, broken, right? Uh, in large part, I think, due to Republicans, but you know, in some part due to Democrats as, as well. And so, you know, I, 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 look, I agree with everything you said, Quinta. I just... I don't know. Maybe, 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 maybe there's there's some four dimensional chess here, and we'll just see how, see how it plays out. I mean, look, I think that the Biden administration's approach to immigration has been morally appalling. It's the thing that I find the most disgusting among, you know, generally. I think the administration has been pretty good. This, I think, their willingness to throw migrants under the bus in order to gain a domestic political win is really, really repulsive um, and their willingness to be pressured by the right into creating kind of a fortress America, I think, is something that would not have been possible pre-Trump. I can't remember who saw this, but some immigration policy expert made a point on Twitter or X long, long ago, um, essentially saying that Stephen Miller won. Um, And I, I think that that's unfortunate and I think it's completely true. What I will say is, you know, I I don't think there's an easy solution on the policy front of this at all, in part because of the intersection with politics. But the one area where I think the Biden administration 
could really draw a line in the sand that would be very effective and take effective action to deter things is around simply inhumane enforcement behavior, which is something we're seeing bounce back here and has been a recurring theme along items on the border of saying withholding water, separating families being the one where we are seeing, you know, an end to family separation efforts to address um, correctly as it absolutely is necessary uh, and to the extent you can remedy and help you know, restore families that were separated um, during the Trump administration. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of truly inhumane enforcement behavior. Even if you were to accept that we should have draconian immigration limits, that is not a license to treat people like they are not people uh, or to engage in violent acts that would be criminal, that are criminal, frankly, being applied to people as soon as they cross our border. If it's in our jurisdiction, we should be prosecuting this, If I'm, in my opinion, if I'm being completely honest. Um, and that is an area where I think you could see um, and maybe yet we may see, although uh, the politics around it probably will make this less likely, some action. Um, you know, look, it, the the Trump administration really, really opened the floodgates on this in a really problematic way um, with family separation, among other measures. And somebody really needs to take a step to slam that door shut and make clear there will be consequences and create an expectation that the federal government will enforce those consequences no matter what the underlying policy might be. And that's something I really would like to see a more public stance on. Um, and that's very different from what we're seeing here or in other contexts. So far, you know, I think there have been little hints in that direction, but you haven't really seen an effort. I think it's one that, frankly, has political upside for the Biden administration, too. And so uh, it's one productive area. I think they actually could engage on this. But, you know, I, again, the politics around this are so toxic. It just seems like to the extent people want to address things, they want to try and do it quietly. Um, and that's a hard thing to do when you have so many vocal voices anxious to talk about this sort of thing and mobilize people around it. So speaking of the the court system, uh, the Supreme Court ethics sort of rolling scandal, I guess, I would say, uh, continues to to move forward. Um, and last week, the Senate— Like a leisurely luxury cruise around prime <laughs> fishing territory. It is just rolling its way along the coastline. Picking up Alaskan with, salmon as it goes. With, the, with its libraries full of— not super interesting memoirs that you have to pay for. <laughs> With copies of Sonia Sotomayor's book. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> we have to get that in. Fair, fair yeah, game. no, fair fair, game. extremely that fair game. Very bad behavior. So, so, so bad. yes, the scandals, they are continuing. And the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, last week, under the leadership of Chairman Sheldon Whitehouse, moved forward mandatory ethics legislation that would require the court, uh, like every other lower court, to adopt a code of conduct for justices um, and a system for receiving and evaluating complaints of judicial misconduct. It seems pretty clear that this legislation is dead in the water. The Republicans are not hugely interested, I don't think, in, in taking this up on the Senate floor. But it is nevertheless, you know, one more moment kind of signaling that there is an increasing political appetite, particularly on the left, to start tackling the ethics problems uh, that the court seems to be weighing itself down with. So what do we think of this? Is this posturing by White House and the committee? Um, is this a sign that we're moving toward anything? Will anything change? Natalie, what do you think? I, I wish that I could say that things are going to change, but I am a little cynical about it, I will say. Um, 
this issue, which should not be political, is like everything else politicized. Um, Republicans are arguing that this is disingenuous legislation because it's really just Democrats trying to undermine a court that it disagrees with because there have been a lot of decisions of late that Democrats are very unhappy with. You know, in any other environment, there would be a lot of alarm over the fact that there have been these, as you said, Quinta, rolling crises um, and rolling controversies. So I actually I was going back to think about this a little bit and was reminded of just how many controversies there are, because I think they've been coming out gradually and in different forms. Um, you know, I think the the ones that we referenced um, were there was a ProPublica story about uh, billionaire Harlan Crow paying for luxury trips um, for Justice Thomas and similar news about a billionaire paying for also luxury trips for Justice Alito. Then follow up a ProPublica case about how Harlan Crow also paid for tuition and had this sweetheart real estate deal also with members of Thomas's family. But it's not just that. There was the leak of the Dobbs decision, which was really caused a crisis of legitimacy because the Supreme Court is, has always been seen to and certainly believes itself to be a place that is held together by, if not a written code of conduct, a sort of mutual agreement to act with integrity and honor. And that seems to just be really, really falling apart. There's also around the January 6th cases, there was, were a lot of complaints that Justice Thomas was not recusing himself from cases that directly implicated his wife. Um, for example, a the case in which um, the Supreme Court 8 to 1 ruled that NARA had to disclose documents to the January 6th committee despite uh, former President Trump arguing that it should not. Um, and those were widely thought to include most likely text messages from Justice Thomas's wife and he was the sole dissenter on that case. Um, we also referenced up top the controversy with Justice Sotomayor, whose um, staff was uh, apparently reaching out to bookstores to encourage them to promote her book. Um, there were speeches and closed-door events. There are all sorts of contacts between the justices and people who have business before the courts. There was a whistleblower that came out uh, a couple of months ago talking about the fact that he was a former anti-abortion activist, uh, talking about efforts among conservatives to get close to the Supreme Court by joining this historical society of the Supreme Court or something like that. And um, he said that he was made aware of the Hobby Lobby decision in 2014 before it came out, which enabled him to um, get advance start on a publicity campaign and a public relations push. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. And in my mind, I mean, you all have heard me, I think it's fair to say, rant about the state of the legal profession and how much I think we are failing as a profession to enforce ethical codes of conduct and to care at all about how the public perceives the profession. This is just Another example of that, but it's it's truly egregious, especially as Quinto was saying, in contrast to the judicial conference, which has mandatory codes of conduct that are binding on every other member of the judiciary. And the justices just can't 
come to a consensus on what their own code of conduct should be. And yet they when when controversies come out, they make arguments that indicate they sort of feel bound or at least make reference to codes of conduct. Like there was some ridiculous example of how because justices don't have to disclose certain types of hospitality that, you know, this cruise was really just hospitality. It wasn't in the category of things that I do have to disclose. And some example of like someone arguing that a private jet is a facility, not travel. I I don't I didn't even follow fully, but it's that's textualism, baby. <laughs> I mean, look, if you're if you're a rich guy and you own a cruise ship, then, you know, it is your house. I, I suppose. But it's, it's all just so absurd. And it it really, to me, just displays just how much, at least in action, the Supreme Court is not doing anything to combat the public sentiment that has brought it down so, so much in public estimation as to its trustworthiness, as to its integrity, and as to its fair place in American society and law. So, you know, I, I think we got to think about this proposal. I agree with all that. I think this proposal is still a good element of show, but useful show, right? You know, it's occurring against a backdrop where, A, the, the showier parts of it is that it's not clear to me a code of conduct is really going to do a lot to address the sorts of conduct of issues, right? You can have some more clarity of rules. That is something the Supreme Court could do already and actually kind of has done already, although probably still not as clear as we would like to be in regards to disclosure obligations, right? We also know the code of conducts as they've applied to the lower courts have not done well, right? We, we've also – we forget we're coming off of several years of revelations about really horrendous treatment of law clerks, sexual harassment, horrible labor standards, a lot of other ethical violations by lower court judges. Um, you know, uh, they haven't gotten quite the the attention but they're they're quite serious by both Republican and Democratic appointed judges in ways that are really underserves the, you know, the judiciary as an institution but that we've seen a – frankly, limited effort to push back on. And that's certainly the code of existence of codes of conduct that have been on the books much longer than these incidents didn't do much to stymie, um, let alone, you know, disclosure obligations that, I, I, you know, there may not be the mechanisms in place to get the same degree of scrutiny. Um, but but it's concerning that we have this happening throughout the judiciary. And there seems to be a, the self-governance mechanisms that are implemented, even the lower courts don't seem to be able to stymie what is in a lot of ways like bad behavior that hurts third parties much more directly, and yet they're impotent to address them, honestly. Um, so I'm not sure this would actually do anything. Um, what I do think it is useful is it brings attention to it, and it pushes back on the subtle argument we've heard from Chief, Chief Justice Roberts that these measures, including disclosure obligations that are already on the books, raise separation of powers concerns or questions. I think it's often phrased. I think I take separation of powers very seriously. I think there are serious limits about separation of powers, including around the judiciary. They're nowhere near this, um, right? Like Congress can substantially amend the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and federal courts uh, within certain limits, uh, as we as you know, it's defined from our reverse medicine elsewhere. But they do have a substantial authority to amend major parts uh, of what the Supreme Court does, the composition, the number of justices. This one's a little debatable, but I think it's true. The life tenure of justices within certain constraints, at least how they serve as active justices, right? Um, certainly, we see senior judge arrangements at uh, on the lower courts, and I think you could do something similar with Supreme Court. So the idea that Congress can't impose uh, you know, an obligation to assemble a code of conduct or to set up certain processes, I, I think, is a little absurd, um, certainly where they don't rise to the level of removal. And so pushing back on that is very useful. And I think there are certain things that 
that Supreme Court could do. But to, for them to be effective, you need to bring in another higher authority. Maybe it's not a higher authority on all things. Maybe you're talking about removal or punishing somebody. But imagine if you had an ethics office where it was the obligation of Supreme Court justice to consult that ethics office on ambiguities regarding disclosure obligations, right? That would really undercut these arguments that, well, I was doing what I understood to be the practice of the office. And by the way, those ethics offices, those offices you're supposed to consult, they exist in every federal agency. If you are the lowest level federal employee and you're not sure about your ethical obligations, there are hotlines you call and they give you guidance on your ethical obligations. It's kind of absurd that you have Supreme Court justice saying, well, oh, I I read this this way. In this case, where I clearly have a self-interest and it led me to reach this ruling and I'm allowed to do that. Um, that's not something we allow for any other federal official, down to the president uh, who has ethics offices in the executive office of the president to consult on this stuff. So, you know, there are measures that could be taken, I think should be taken by the Supreme Court or by Congress. The Supreme Court won't. Um, And pushing in that direction, I think, is good. As an actual substantive proposal, I don't know if this is my favorite, but, you know, having the conversation is useful and bringing that political pressure to bear, I do think will matter because I do think Chief Justice Roberts really does seem to care about legitimacy of the court. I think this is actually a threat to it. Um, and maybe it will finally bring enough external pressure to say, OK, well, maybe this will drive internal reform. I, I suspect Chief Justice Roberts is actually, despite his kind of formalist separation of powers footnote he has to put on everything, wants to do more in this space. But it's probably constrained by how much he can get his colleagues on board with. Public pressure is useful on that. Um, You know, when you have Justice Alito hopping onto the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages to pre-rebut stories about him, it is weird behavior, A, B, a sign that they are feeling the pressure. Um, And that's useful to some extent. And I think, you know, until you overcome the political barriers to doing more solid reform, that's all you can do is up the pressure up. But having it come from Congress is is useful. So I I agree with everything everyone said. I want to offer sort of two maybe slightly more kind of random, random thoughts on this. First... I think it has been undercovered just how fortunate we should all be at the ridiculous Sotomayor book story. And I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but here's what I mean. It is so valuable that this problem is not just coming from the right wing of the court. It is so valuable for a number of reasons. Uh, First, it makes clear that this is not an issue of quote unquote conservative judges. Um, This is an issue of, you know, what I sometimes call black robe syndrome. Right. The, the <laughs> having having life tenure can go to your head a little bit and you get sloppy. I think it's also really important because I hope that this convinces folks on the legal left that they need to stop lionizing judges like the, the left has always had this like very weird kind of split personality between on the other on the one hand recognizing that the court, at least in American history, has on net been a small C conservative institution that is just not in progressive interests. On the other hand, just not being able to resist lionizing Supreme Court justices on the left, right? Um, you know, I think that this is kind of most, this honestly has got to the most problematic levels with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but you still see it happening today. And hopefully, again, the point is not to vilify Justice Sotomayor. The point is just to say like, look, even those judges who are quote unquote nominally on your side, they're, they're just judges and they make lots of mistakes and we have to start start treating them just like normal people. And that then brings me to my second point, which is, look, it, it's good that Congress is seizing itself of this issue. This won't go anywhere. I agree with you, Scott. I'm not sure how useful it would be, et cetera, et cetera. It, it does seem to me, though, that for me, the real lesson is that 
ethics reform is is actually not the way to fix this problem. Um, now, obviously, some stuff is really bad. Like, I, I still think that the worst stuff is still by far Justice Thomas not recusing himself. Like, I actually put that into a completely separate category than all of this stuff, which is bad and gross, and I don't like it. But frankly, elites being elite is so downstream, <laughs> so overdetermined in American government that, like, I'll be honest, me personally, I, I care less about it. I think it's gross, and I, I'd rather they didn't do stuff like this. But, like, this is not the thing that I think is harming the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. To me, the problem is that we don't have term limits. We just need to slap 18-year term limits on these people, right? And just Alan, I didn't know you were a bit. term limit extremist like I was. Oh, I am a, not talked oh, about my, this? I am a total term limit. I oh, am a 100% I buy into this so hard. term limit extremist. I love, we got to talk offline. <laughs> oh, my God. No, let's do it. I, I, I love, I love, I forget whose idea this was. Maybe, maybe it was... Maybe it was Jack Balkins. Maybe I just made that up. But it was like some idea where you have like everyone's a Supreme Court justice, but they only get to be justices for 18 years and then they get senior status. But that's OK, because I think this is fabulous ideas. And I think only when we reconstruct the judiciary along the lines of they're just people who we temporarily give a bunch of power to. Right. But they're not godheads. They don't get to serve for their entire lives. We will continue to have this problem. Right. The problem of the court having sort of too much influence and not just the court, but the individual idiosyncratic justices having too much influence. And I think that's the fundamental problem. Now that's a multi, I think that's a generational reform movement uh, that I would be happy to be, you know, um, uh, lend my shoulder to. And if it needs to start with, you know, ethics reform as the vehicle for recognizing the profound fallibility of this group of people that we have just given too much power to, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm, I'm happy with that. But you know, yeah, that's that's where I that's where I fall on this. Just when, for the record, I think that's the fix to the court uh, reform proposal is the leading 18, 18 year term reform proposal that I've seen floated around. That's got a bunch of co-signers and whatnot. Although they may not have come up with the original idea. But, so, but, but is, are we talking about the statutory one or the con- the constitutional one? Is never going to happen. I'm thinking the about statutory the statutory. One. The statutory. Definitely, it's a statutory with, proposal with, with the pool of justices. I believe yeah, that's okay. right. Uh, I'd have yeah. to go back and check that detail, but I believe that's right. Um, but it's interesting. Worth reading if people are interested. Fix the court. I think Gabe Roth is the head of that and, and is a thoughtful guy on this stuff. Yeah. So one one addition to your point, Alan, I think that it is certainly true that the center left did and has continued to some extent to lionize particular justices in the liberal bloc. I think that is far less true now than it was before Ginsburg's death, honestly. Um, and there is a significant contingent of left advocates for court reform who are explicitly against lionizing any individual justice. So I do think it's worth being a little more precise about which groups we're talking about who are sort of participating in that lionization and acknowledging the fact that the degree to which there is a kind of mini cult around particular justices on the left side of left to center left side of the aisle, I think has significantly decreased after, frankly, everyone realized that Ginsburg kind of screwed up by staying on the court. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together for this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come until we were back in your pod catchers. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I was in town last week to see all of you, and it was amazing. And we were all set to see the Barbie movie on Friday. But then we canceled because we thought that the news that we're not talking about until it happens was going to happen. And then it didn't happen. But I still got to see a really fun summer blockbuster instead. 
I got to see Mission Impossible 7. I totally lose track after three. Dead Reckoning Part 1. It is fabulous. I am like, I, I can't, I am, you're going to all laugh at me. I think Tom Cruise is underrated. I think he's fabulous. I think he is like single-handedly saving cinema. I think he's very good at what he does. This is a very hot take. I find him, continue to find him overwhelmingly charming. Yes, I know. I got all the baggage. I'm no fool. But, you know. Do you want to jump on a couch and declare base, your love for him? Yeah, look, that was a while ago. That was a, it's a real ago. throwback he, reference. He, he seems, Quinta may be too young a, to remember. He seems a lot chiller. Thing. <laughs> seems a lot chiller now. The dude base jumped off a motorcycle for this movie. It is movie. cool. And what's amazing is that, like, that is just the beginning of, like, a 25-minute action set piece that is it's like it's so good everything about that movie is so good um so go watch it it's super fun yeah it, this is not my uh this is not my most uh you know high culture object lesson but god i had fun quinto what do you have for us this week assumably some other action movie featuring awesome stunts yes barbie there you go <laughs> there were awesome stunts uh, yeah so i did finally get to see the barbie movie even though our original plans were derailed I had a fun time. It was not great. It was, like, pretty good. I don't think it totally worked, but it was a tremendous amount of fun, and I also recommend seeing it in a theater with a lot of other people, many of whom I saw purchasing, like, full bottles of wine um, at the concession stand (laughs) before we went into the theater, which may have contributed to the vibe. Um, Everyone was extremely into it, and I had a very good time, even if two days later I'm still kind of trying to figure out the many ways that I think it fell short of what it could have been. Highly recommended, hugely entertaining. I genuinely have no idea if straight cis men will like it or find it interesting Love in any it. way whatsoever i, I don't I'm, know I'm, I'm on the case quinta i will i will report please back. please report back because i think that the theater was like 90 percent women and 10 percent gay men um <laughs> it was delightful i found my way there by following all of the other people wearing pink i am not joking um highly recommended lots of fun don't think too hard about it while you're in there because it will limit your enjoyment I, I, as a, as a cisgender white male did see the movie uh, on Saturday and I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was great. I have similar reservations. Sounds like you do more about like structure and plot development and drive and some like underlying theme issues that I found it was like a, you know, maybe an A minus movie uh, as opposed to like, like an A. a- Guys, B it's a movie plus. about Barbie dolls. I know, but it really no, but it, it tries to go. It tries to go deeper, and I don't think it actually does. Well, and it doesn't. It does in a creative way that I think they could have hit those notes even and in they, the Barbie yeah, movie. But they didn't, and they fell a little bit short. But you know, it's one of those movies where I would love to see the director's cut when it comes out on Blu-ray <laughs> because I I suspect that maybe you know way weirder. It could have been different. I, I will say there's a really good episode. I think it was the Daily that talks about the story behind the movie, which I think is actually much like must listen context to the movie itself because it gets into the fact that it is actually a conscious product of Mattel trying to rebrand. It's also a New, a New Yorker, Yorker article. article. New York, was it the New Yorker article? Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. It was the New Yorker uh, podcast. I listened the to Daily podcasts. had a good maybe it was, maybe episode there's about it too. Yeah. It's super interesting. You really actually makes parts of the movie make more sense and also parts of the movie seem even more 
sort of, uh, you know, uh, twisted in an interesting way, like kind of playing back and pushing on Mattel some interesting ways and on the legacy of Barbie in a very Greta gerwig sort of way. Uh, that's fun. Um, so I enjoy it. I really like her as a filmmaker. Um, so I thought I was going to like it going in. Um, so I enjoyed it. But here's what I'm going to say. This is not, none of this is my object lesson. This is just me rambling. Uh, <laughs> I The thing I loved walking out of it, and I said to my wife when we walked out of the movie, and it was like one in the morning because we went to go see Way Too Late a Showing because the only tickets we could get. So I was a little loopy. But I was like, I just am so happy happy I live in a moment where we can have weird cinema because I'm like I usually don't like movies honestly I don't see many of them I find them most universally disappointing but I like weird movies I like people who take the form and do something interesting and cool with it I think Barbie definitely is that even if it's not entirely successful Um, but there is a movie I saw this year that I think was entirely successful it's not everything everywhere all at once which also was entirely successful and brilliant everybody knows about that it's the academy it was the Dungeons and Dragons movie which I don't think I actually ended up endorsing here so good so good so good so good but 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 chris pine though chris pine is also criminally underrated i kind of was persuaded oh, God, of that by pine. this and yeah. then actually i remember wonder woman i actually liked him in such a good captain kirk too wait when also did rational security kirk. become a movie review podcast well since we never made my other movie review, podcast, <laughs> I, want to review. I think this makes sense um so i would encourage people to check it out i think it's a movie that you will get even if you weren't like a nerd playing Dungeons and Dragons in your childhood. If you were, you will love it because it's just full of like little Easter eggs. But it does such a good job making a super weird movie. And it is the tightest, most cohesive super weird movie I think I've seen. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, wow, that was just really good filmmaking. It's not deep. It's not trying to do anything headier like Barbie kind of does at various points. Um, but it is absurd in a fun way. And I think it's great. So uh, I highly recommend that. That's my endorsement in, in the weird movie zone. Natalie, what weird movie do you have to endorse for us? today it's gonna be a real downer serious one aren't you you took the you drew the quinta card on the object lesson this week <laughs> i actually i did not i i came with a positive right. um, object lesson but it is not a movie because i just had a baby um congratulations which, why thank you that is the um the long time away uh that scott was referring to it was not we that didn't i want to abandoned you as a mother <laughs> <laughs> i've talked about my kid before Fair this enough. is this is my second um so, you know, I'm a total expert now. But uh, yes, I did not want the listeners to think that I had just abandoned my team for several months. My my departure was for parental leave purposes. So I – yes, I am fundamentally unable to watch an entire movie right now, both for time constraints and fatigue reasons. I do have two object lessons from my parental leave because, you know, you can't do much of any substance while you are on parental leave keeping a child alive. Um, But one Alan will find delightful, which is um, I made extensive use of the Libby app, which he has talked about many times on the podcast before. But for those who don't know, it is um, an app that connects with your local library through which you can get free books and audiobooks, which is especially good if you are happen to be um, keeping a baby alive and don't have hands to hold a book. It's excellent. It was a real lifeline for me um, when I had one hand to read a book on my phone or uh, wanted to listen to an audiobook. And my second object lesson at the risk of being a bit stereotypical is some baby clothing um, because I was reacquainted upon having this baby with the fact that I find the degree to which baby clothes are gendered in a very, very stereotypical, um, often problematic way to be upsetting. 
So I want to endorse a local DC artist whom I love. Um, she sells uh, at Eastern Market, but she also has a website. It's called Marasa. She uh, donates a portion of her proceeds to a girls literacy organization in India. And the clothing is all gender neutral, very fun. And I really love it. So check it out. Excellent. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And while you're at it, be sure to follow us on X at – that's the only way <laughs> I'm uh, – it's the only way I'm letting myself say that. At, I'm sure that's how Elon would want it. At RATL Security. And be sure to leave a rating and review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer this week was Noam Osban of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Natalie Orpet, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.